What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Dr. Charlotte Laws. She is an author, television personality, and victim activist. You may recognize her for her fierce tenacity from Netflix's Most Hated Man on the Internet, on which she contributed a great deal to the conversation surrounding non-consensual pornography. Her life before the infamous legal and media battles, as well as what came next for Charlotte and her daughter after them, is extremely riveting. It is all of these experiences that have led Charlotte to make a lasting impact for so many victims. I live in Los Angeles, and my daughter lives very close to me now. At the time when all of this happened, she was living at home. I'm married to Charles, who is a retired attorney. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, lived in Florida for a little while, then moved to Los Angeles in about 1980. I was a single mom. Kayla was probably about 13 when Charles and I got married. Her father lives in New York, and she talked to him for the first time when she was about 10 years old. We have a very close relationship because it was just the two of us for a long time. We always had at least three or four dogs in the house, so those were her siblings. She's my only baby. I've had a varied professional life. I've done over 30 different professions, from being the head of a legal corporation, to lecturing at the FBI, to being a private investigator, to working as a bandit cab driver, to being a chip chatter in Las Vegas, where I made $300,000 a year. It was a job I completely invented from scratch when I was 20 years old, so that's a lot of money for a 20-year-old. I've been a real estate agent for about 35 years. I've contributed to some academic books, and I've written over 100 articles in various publications. I have two memoirs. One is called Rebel in High Heels, and the other is called Undercover Debutante. They cover different times in my life. Rebel in High Heels covers the revenge porn fight, also the first 20 years of my life. And Undercover Debutante covers age 21 up to about age 40. It covers tracking down my birth parents. I was adopted at birth, so I tracked down my natural parents, my brother and my sister. There's a lot of party crashing in both of them and a lot of my crazy jobs and crazy experiences being held at gunpoint and all sorts of crazy things that have happened. I've also been a politician in the area. I was a city commissioner in Los Angeles and I was on the Greater Valley Glen Council for eight years. I was a commentator and a political pundit on BBC TV up until about a year ago. I've just done lots of different things. I love trying new things and checking out different professions. So I've done a lot. I think I've always been this way. And I think a lot of it is hereditary. I believe very strongly that genetics are stronger than environment. 
I did track down my birth parents and my grandfather was murdered by a devil worshiper in 1948. He was also Italian. So he was the victim of prejudice and it was huge prejudice. He was an attorney. He was kicked out of two law offices because he was Italian and he was kicked out of his house because the CCNRs, there was a long stream of groups that were not allowed to live in that neighborhood. So I don't know if you would call it a fight for justice. I think it's been kind of more of a fight against prejudice since I was a kid. I grew up in a very racist family and a very racist community of upper class Atlanta where old money was good and new money, like entertainment people, were bad. That was their view. I was attacked pretty much every day by people because I supported the civil rights movement and I didn't really know other people who did. My family would make racist jokes all the time and I would get angry and stomp off to my room. And so I just really had this problem with that from a very young age. One day I was sitting on a hill with my dog. I used to read a lot of philosophy books as a young person. And I just had this experience, which sounds crazy, but I believed I had a mission to work towards eradicating prejudice. I later read an article that one third of all the people in the world believe they have a mission in life. I was one of that one third of all the people in the world. It started with fighting for the civil rights movement. And then as I got older, it became animal rights and gay rights and eventually women's rights with the revenge porn issue. I've just always had this connection with helping victims, being able to empathize. I felt like a victim myself as a child because I was always the outsider in my family. I was the outsider in my community. My father was verbally abusive. My brother was killed in a car accident two years after my mom tried to kill herself. My father, he said, you were never to mention your mother's name in this house again, and you were never to visit her. He filed for divorce immediately. I had to sneak my brother to visit my mom at the convalescent home because my brother was actually much closer to her. I was not close to either of my parents, so I had to become a very independent person at a young age. I realized that it was all on me. I had to make my own decisions. I couldn't rely on my parents. I couldn't rely on anyone I knew. My entire goal growing up was to escape, to get the heck out of there. Thank God for the TV because that's the only reason I knew that there were people with different views, people who were not prejudiced. I noticed that people in the entertainment industry seemed to be very open-minded. That's one reason I started crashing events. Luckily, I went to a really good school, so I had kind of recruited teachers to be my substitute parents at a very young age. But then as I got older, I just started getting to know people in entertainment, and they were very friendly and gregarious. So that's kind of my history. It's funny, I always had very low self-esteem. I've never considered myself intelligent. Growing up, I also felt like I was ugly. I just had very low self-esteem. When I wrote my memoirs about my life, I'm looking back going, I don't seem like somebody who has low self-esteem because I'm always doing all this crazy stuff as if I'm confident, but I didn't feel confident inside. So it was kind of interesting to learn that my actions and my feelings inside didn't really mesh. I don't know if I have a favorite party crashing story. I have a lot of stories, but one of my more recent ones, because I don't do it that often anymore. When I do crash, it's always for a reason. When I was 16, 17, it was just for fun. But now it's to push for legislation, get celebrities signed on to a cause or for celebrity interviews, that kind of thing. I love your determination and tenacity. Speaking of which, I first saw you on Netflix's The Most Hated Man on the Internet. Can you describe your experiences for our listeners and what you and your daughter Kayla went through, especially for those who maybe haven't seen the docuseries? 
My daughter had taken some pictures in the privacy of her room, some selfies, and one of the pictures had been topless. She ran out of room on her cell phone, so she sent them to her email to save. After that, she was hacked. After being hacked, her topless picture was loaded to a website called isanyoneup.com, which was the most notorious revenge porn website there was. It was not only just the picture, but it was linked to her name, her social media, her city, and other closed pictures that they had also stolen. She was at her workplace when she found out this was a waitressing job that she had at the time. One of her friends called her and told her that she was on the site. And she was just distraught. I mean, she was freaked out. She didn't know what to do. She felt violated. She felt humiliated. She called me immediately and said something horrible happened, mom. I immediately thought it might be a car accident because that's just what you usually think. But then she explained this website and what revenge porn was. I went on the site. I had never heard of any of this before. I didn't know Hunter Moore. I didn't know is anyone up.com. Hunter Moore was the owner of the website. She somehow made it through her shift at work as a waitress. She spilled water at one table. She was so distraught, the customer said, is something wrong? And she said there was a death in the family. She came home, she locked herself in her bedroom. She didn't want to come out. She shut down her social media. She started getting phone calls from strangers. She was getting emails from strangers, guys trying to ask her out. A well-known porn star called her to quote, talk business. She was really just disgusted by the whole thing. She didn't want me to tell anybody because she was too embarrassed. I just kind of jumped into action immediately trying to figure out how to get this picture down because I knew that a nude picture on the internet would just proliferate and not go away. It was very important to very quickly get it removed before it was picked up by other websites. The first thing that Kayla and I did is we sent emails to the website owner asking him to remove the content. He wouldn't do it which didn't surprise me because by now I had been researching this guy. Other people had asked him to remove content and he had always refused. It was just a really disgusting website. It wasn't really about pornography. It was about ruining lives. It was about trying to drive people to suicide. It was about trying to get people fired. It was nasty comments. If you were a teacher, the followers of the website would contact the school board and the parents, and they'd be sending out your nude pictures to everybody they could in an effort to get you fired and ruin your life. So that's what the whole site was about. And it wasn't just 20-year-old girls. There were women who were over 60. Supposedly, at one point, the website owner was going to post pictures of a dead woman from a morgue, nude pictures. I don't know if he ever posted those or not, but that's kind of more what the site was about hatred and nastiness. The website owner believed that tearing other people down somehow would build him up. That was his philosophy. He called himself a professional life ruiner. The website used Charles Manson language. They called themselves the family. He called himself the father. His followers were the children. People would post things like, I will kill for you, father. Tell me what to do. I will do anything you say. He had all these devoted followers. And at the time, he had 600,000 followers on Twitter. And he was getting glorified in the media. Media thought he was cool. You know, innovative new business model. And they were giving him headlines. And they were putting his picture everywhere. He was getting feature articles in major magazines. He was getting on mainstream television shows. And he was loving it. He was loving all of this fame and all this attention. I was still trying to get my daughter's picture down. We went to the Los Angeles Police Department. 
it was a middle-aged female detective and her comment to Kayla was, why would you take a picture like this if you didn't want it on the internet? So she was doing the victim blaming, which frankly society was doing, whether it was media or politicians or law enforcement or ordinary people, everybody was blaming the victims. I ended up calling the FBI. They didn't originally want to take the case. They said, file a complaint online. I said sarcastically, oh, I see you help Scarlett Johansson when her pictures get hacked, but you don't help the average person. So the operator just sighed and said, I'll transfer you to a detective. I was then told there would be three agents coming to my house later in the month. That's how it started. My daughter noticed that one of her friends was also pictured topless on the same website. She called her friend and the friend also said she'd been hacked. So now I knew two people on this one website and they'd both been hacked. My thought was, hmm, seems like there might be a hacking scheme going on here. I decided to launch my own investigation. I did a survey of about 40 people who had been posted within a two week period of when my daughter was posted. It was very hard getting in touch with these people because I was afraid to use technology I was afraid the hacker could be on their email or their social media. So everything had to be done by phone. You can't always get a phone number for someone. So I would have to look at their last name, the city they lived in, and then call somebody with the same last name and say, are you related to this person? Could you have her call me? It was very roundabout and extremely tedious. But in the end, I found out that 40% of the people I spoke to had been hacked and some of them we knew had been hacked by the same person. So there was definitely a hacking scheme. Tia and his hacker believed that if there was a nude or topless picture in your email, the victim had definitely sent it to someone and therefore no one would ever uncover the hacking because they would always assume that whoever they sent it to was the one who submitted it. This was their miscalculation. They didn't realize that some people might actually have a picture in their email that they had never sent to anybody. And that's where their miscalculation came in because my daughter had never sent it out. So it was very obviously hacking. I was able to give this information to the FBI when they showed up at my house eventually several weeks later. Revenge porn was not illegal at the time. You could distribute non-consensual pornography without any sort of a penalty. The only law that he was technically breaking was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, because anytime you take a picture of yourself, you own the copyright. So my daughter did own the copyright to all of her photos, the topless one and also all the clothed ones. It's usually a civil case, so it's very hard to compel somebody to remove that content. And if you do want to get it removed, a lot of times you have to go to court and sue them. But the problem with Hunter Moore is he didn't have any assets and he had no fear of civil suits. He was very afraid of going to prison. He was very afraid of law enforcement. My experience has been that perpetrators who distribute revenge porn, for some reason, do tend to be afraid of law enforcement. They don't want to go to jail, but they could care less if you sue them civilly. So the hacking was really the only way to get Hunter. Two days after being arrested, Hunter Moore was let out on bail. Around this time, Hunter allegedly incited his website supporters to target the law's family. I did get death threats. I did get bombarded with computer viruses. I even had a stalker at my house, which was left out of the documentary, surprisingly. I have no idea why that was left out because I thought it was really relevant. I got locks for my gates. 
I was mainly worried about my animals because I had three dogs at the time, seven chickens. I was very afraid for my animals because it would be very easy for someone to come on the property and murder my animals because there really aren't even laws to protect animals sufficiently. So not only did I get the locks for the gates, but I also kind of felt like I couldn't leave the house because I had to guard it. I had to guard my animals' lives. That's kind of how I felt the whole time. My daughter and I also put metal bars under our beds just in case we needed them as a weapon. It was scary because there are all these anonymous people and you just don't know who they are and you don't know what they're capable of. So I will say that does make you feel off balance. I did feel like I was being bombarded, which was creepy and scary, but it was almost more like a battle. I had my armor on and he had his armor on. We were like going at each other. There were times where I felt like I was losing the battle and there were times where I felt like I had an upper hand. Most of the time I felt like we were just clashing at each other. He was living at home with his parents and they posted the bail for him. So he wasn't in jail during all of this time. He was just waiting for his various court dates. Weeks before the court date, I had been gathering together victims to show up in court to speak about what happened. I planned to bring in about 25 different victims who would speak one after the other after the other because I had spoken with Kamala Harris's office on several occasions. She was the Attorney General of California at the time. They had had great success at getting a longer prison term, I think it was 18 years, for another revenge porn website owner who had a website in San Diego. Her office told me the reason why they had success is because they had this stream of victims coming in and speaking, and that just made a huge impact on the court. So that's what I wanted to do is bring these people in. The victims didn't want their identities known, so the plan was to have them cover their faces because there was so much media outside the courtroom. I said, I know we could wear anonymous masks, and I bought a bunch of anonymous masks for them to wear into court. The prosecutor called me into her office and didn't want me to get victims together. She said, we're going to get them together. I don't want you talking to them anymore. I don't want you coordinating it. We will coordinate it. We will do all of that. I think she didn't like the idea of the anonymous mask. She thought that made it a circus. I think it was the word she used. But I thought it was good because I think it gets more attention on the issue. Also, as you know, having seen the documentary, the group Anonymous was involved. Anonymous is considered a hacktivist collective. It is a group of tech-savvy people that take issue with online predators and often attempt to help victims with their alternative techniques. Anonymous sent him an open letter via his website. They wrote, and I quote, This is a call to all of Anonymous. We will hold Hunter Moore accountable for his actions. We will protect anyone who is victimized by abuse of our internet. We will prevent the stalking, rape, and possible murders as byproduct of his sites. Operation Anti-Bully, Operation Hunt Hunter engaged. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Hunter Moore, expect us. Anyway, she said she was going to get the victims together. I said, okay, fine. I won't coordinate with them anymore. Here's the list of people. You do it. I don't know if the victims were contacted. The date kept getting moved, so it was kind of confusing. Hunter's side, they kept pushing the date forward, six months forward and then a year forward. It took like four years before he finally went to jail. It was a very long process. 
Every time that we'd be ready for one day, the date would get changed to another day. So it was a little bit frustrating because some of the victims were not in the Los Angeles area. They had to coordinate this to come into town and be here on the right day and speak. They kind of needed that notice. When you keep pushing the date forward, it makes it hard to get everything organized. I came to court with my daughter for the sentencing and no one was there except my daughter. There was no one to speak. I don't know if that had anything to do with getting a light sentence, but we definitely didn't have a stream of people there to speak about what had happened to them. It was a plea deal, by the way. I think the plea deal was decided before we actually got to court between him and his attorney and the prosecutor. Kayla and I were taken to a room. The FBI agent, Jeff, was there, as I recall. We were told that he's going to take a plea deal. It wasn't necessarily going to be a two and a half year sentence. I think it was two and a half to seven years. There was some leeway for the judge to decide. That's what we were told. And that's what happened. And then we went into court and Kayla made her speech. I also had a letter from one other victim, someone who had written a letter about what happened to them. I handed that over to the judge and that was it. The judge gave him two and a half years in prison. I think the hacker got two and a half or three years in prison. They're both out now. He was raided, I believe, at the end of 2012. Then he was arrested, I think, January of 2014. Then it was another couple of years before he went to prison. So it was a four-year process before he went to prison. He was in prison for a little less than two years. So he's been out for a couple of years now. I feel a lot of pain for my daughter for what she's had to go through with this whole situation. It's still been hard for her. She doesn't even like talking about it. She doesn't like being associated with the issue. She almost didn't do the documentary. She had said no for a year and a half or two years until the day before the filming ended. She finally agreed to do a half day of filming. She feels like it negatively impacts her life being associated with revenge porn because she thinks that her clients will see that she had a topless picture online and not want to do business with her. She's a real estate agent and she's very successful. That's her fear. So she has mixed feelings because she doesn't want to be associated, but at the same time, she understands it's an important issue. She knows that we're still trying to push for a federal law. So she has mixed feelings on the whole thing. I was more in get things done mode. I was like, okay, I've got to get this picture down. Then I've got to get all the other victims' pictures down. Now I've got to start meeting with legislators, pushing for legislation, first in California and speaking in front of the legislature, advising people in other states and helping Jackie Spears' office with federal legislation in any way I can. But my daughter, as I said, is still traumatized by it. Now their website's pretending to have her pictures. They're posting all these nude pictures of some girl who I don't even think looks much like Kayla, but they're claiming it's my daughter, I guess in order to get publicity or to get eyeballs to come over to those websites. So she's still going through it. She has to keep a Google alert on her name for the rest of her life to make sure that that actual picture doesn't show up again. She doesn't know if anybody might've saved it back in the day. We had had many production companies approach us in the last 10 years about a documentary and a scripted actually as a separate thing, but we had a lot of companies approach us. And the reason they never happened mainly was because they wanted Kayla to be part of it. And she said, no, I'm not going to do it. So they'd be like, oh, okay, well, forget it then. Raw TV said, that's okay if she's not in it. They were fine with just me doing it if necessary. But my husband agreed to do it. And then at the last minute, Kayla agreed to do it. So it made it, I think, a much better production. It was very well put together by the filmmakers, in my opinion. I think they did an excellent job. 
my daughter always had mixed feelings about me doing it. She would one day say, I don't want you to do it. And the next day says, oh, I guess you can do it. The day after, no, I don't want you to do it. She was always very wishy-washy about it. She did such a beautiful job expressing herself about something that has caused her so much trauma, especially considering her hesitation. Her victim impact statement, which I know Netflix included at the end of the docuseries, was so moving. I think she helped a lot of people, victims and otherwise, by doing what she did. She was very eloquent. It's amazing that she did such a good interview in half a day and they got so much footage that they were able to use. They had really wanted her to be part of the documentary from the beginning. I think it's really good that she was in it because it added a lot of texture that I think would have been lacking otherwise. I definitely felt vindicated because so many people had been saying that I was lying. I was just pretending my daughter was hacked. They were saying that, oh, she's just a slut and probably sent her picture out to thousands of guys. So we were being attacked by a lot of ordinary people around the country, getting emails, getting attacked on social media. At least when the FBI made the arrests, it became very clear that there really was hacking and they had plenty of evidence to support that. So those kinds of comments pretty much went away for the most part. I also noticed the people who had been supporting the website owner and that website kind of changed their tune. You go on social media and you'll see that all of a sudden they were like, yeah, I don't know why I was following this guy. He's horrible. Their tune changed greatly. Since the documentaries come out, I've been getting emails and messages from people who said they followed the site and they apologized. They have no idea why they did that. They've totally changed their mind. And of course, they're all matured now. They're 10 years older than they were when this was originally happening. But unfortunately, the website owner has not changed his tune. He's never apologized. He still believes that if you tear other people down, somehow it builds him up. And when asked what he would do differently, he said, I would have gone 10 times harder. He doesn't realize that society has changed quite a bit. I think the filmmakers did an excellent job. I thought it's a very compelling documentary. I've seen a lot of documentaries on various streaming services, and I can say that many of them I don't think are very compelling. <laughs> and I'm really trying to distance myself and be unbiased. I really do think this one is good really puts you on the edge of your seat and it has a happy resolution. I think a lot of these documentaries have no resolution or everything is just kind of floating or the bad guy basically prevails. So I feel like this was really a good story and they put it together very nicely. Right now, there are 49 states that have laws against revenge porn and they tend to be very weak. They tend to be misdemeanors. In California, we had a great deal of difficulty getting it passed at all in the first place. Ten years ago, it was before the Me Too movement, and everyone was victim-blaming. The federal law would be important because it would be consistent from state to state. Right now, it's very confusing. If you're in one state and the perpetrator's in another, you don't even know which law applies. Also, because most of them are very, very weak. They're misdemeanors. You'll get a slap on the wrist. You might get six months in prison at the most. You might get a $500 fine or a $1,000 fine, but if it was a federal law, it would be a felony, or at least it could be a wobbler, which means the judge could decide if it was a misdemeanor or a felony. There can be more leeway as far as what you're going to do with regards to prosecuting a person. So that's what I've been pushing for, and I don't really feel like the mission is concluded until we have a federal law. Several other laws before were brought forward that failed in Congress. It's a shame. A lot of countries have laws and our country just can't seem to pass something. 
it's completely a bipartisan issue. We have Democrats and Republicans equally supporting a federal law. Definitely everybody's on board. But for some reason, we just can't seem to get enough people in Congress on board to get something passed. The docu-series for me was about educating the public on the issue and hopefully pushing Congress to move forward and get a federal law passed. Those are the two things I saw really coming out of the docu-series. I'm working on a book right now about a government with representation for all living beings. I'm very much working on animal advocacy issues. Thanks for having me. On Twitter, my handle is at Charlotte Laws, just like my name. Then on Instagram, it's Dr. Charlotte Laws. So DR Charlotte Laws, no period in there. I really appreciate your time and all that you're doing. Thank you again. It was very nice meeting you and I enjoyed talking to you. Charlie Evans was the hacker who aided Hunter Moore in obtaining the stolen photos. He pled guilty to the charges of computer hacking and identity theft in July of 2014. He was sentenced to two years and one month in prison. Charlie was released from prison in November of 2017. Hunter Moore pled guilty in February to one count of unauthorized access to a protected computer and one count of aggravated identity theft. Neither of his convictions were directly related to hosting the revenge porn site IsAnyoneUp.com. Moore was released in May of 2017, six months before his hacker was released. According to Wikipedia, he was under mandatory supervision for three years following his release. Non-consensual pornography, otherwise known as revenge porn, is defined as the dissemination of pornographic material without the consent of the subject and or owner of the media. It is considered cyber-sexual harassment, and although it has been seen as far back as the 1980s, it wasn't illegal until 2013. Over the last almost decade, 48 states have passed anti-revenge porn laws. However, there is no unifying federal criminal revenge porn law as of right now. On March 15, 2022, Congress authorized a federal civil claim which took effect on October 1, 2022. It finally targets the unauthorized distribution of intimate images. Up until now, the closest federal protection that existed was the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986. As Newsweek explains, the statute makes it a criminal offense across the country to access a protected computer without consent with the intent to cause harm or commit a fraud crime. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act also protects unique content by making it illegal to work around protective measures used by media owners to control access to their works. One accomplishment of the act is that it copyrights unique content on the internet and in turn allows victims to file civil claims against anyone who may have benefited or distributed their content, revenge porn included. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I was six years old when the Germans and Nazis invaded Poland. Zamość, the city that I was born and lived for six years, completely was destroyed. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.